Hello, I'm John Waters, and I'm supposed to announce there is no smoking in this theater, which I think is one of the most ridiculous things I've ever heard of in my life. How can anyone sit through a length of a film, especially a European film, and not have a cigarette? But don't you wish you had one right now? Mmm, 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 mmm. And I'm telling you, smoke anyway. It gives ushers jobs. And if people didn't smoke, there would be no employment for the youth of today. So once again, no smoking in this theater. I think that's a good uh that's a good sound to open this episode with though. Just ugh. You <laughs> made that sound many a time while watching this movie. <laughs> You and yeah. uh, it's Try Love. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, we are a literal roundtable podcast where we talk about movies we saw or people we met at the Trial and Cinema in Minneapolis, Minnesota. You can find us on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. You can find the Trial and at Trial and Cinema. You can find 249 other episodes of this podcast. Can you believe it? This is 250, the big 250. Yeah, right. Their eyes are wide, like Tom and Jerry cartoons, everybody. Uh, you can find them all in the backlog anywhere you listen to podcasts. Uh, but for right now, you can find me. I'm one of the people who makes this. My name is Jason Daphnis, and I detest physical labor. You can find me on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Would you fuck me? I'd fuck me. I'm Cody Narvison, and you can find me on Blue Sky at Cody Narvison. That was one of uh, one of mine as well, Cody. Very good. Um, I'm Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at Punish Take. But be careful, because discourtesy is unspeakably ugly to me. <laughs> Uh, check them all out. Uh, check out the Trilon's schedule, including the movie we're about to talk about at Trilon.org. This one played as part of the Nightmarish 90s series in October 2023. Uh, in the absence of our fourth uh, gentleman, Aaron Grossman, I'm going to give the patented Aaron Grossman summary under exclusive license from AG Enterprises Limited, but uh, I'm contractually obligated to play a sound effect before I start. So, Yes, indeed, folks. The Silence of the Lambs is a 1991 film directed by Jonathan Demme and adapted from uh, Thomas Harris's novel of the same name, starring, um, I've actually forgotten to write down the actors and actresses' names, but they're iconic enough. Anthony Hopkins as Hannibal Lecter, uh, Jodie Foster as Clary Starling, uh, Ted Levine as the killer Buffalo Bill. Uh, a serial killer nicknamed Buffalo Bill is killing and skinning women in the American South. A, an FBI trainee named Clarice Starling is assigned an interview with Hannibal Lecter, a former psychologist and current incarcerated cannibalistic serial killer, in hopes that Lecter's insight might help the Bureau catch Buffalo Bill. Um, Lecter's intellectualizing mind games at first uh, uh, and by turns aid and stall Clarice's investigation, but as their relationship deepens through increasingly personal dialogues, Clarice comes to learn the identity of her quarry and reveal her own psychological trauma in the process. Oversimplified, but... Uh, a fine summary. I can't believe I think, you didn't take the opportunity to say that um, his intellectualizing mind games buffalo uh, Starling's the, attempts buffalo, to solve buffalo, this buffalo. case. <laughs> oh, God. I'm not I really thought you were going there. I'm, also, I'm I, I love that... Half for that. We had to, uh, we introduced Hannibal Lecter and even that felt strange to me. It's like, it's like explaining who Dracula is. <laughs> I know, right? Well, that's exactly why, like, normally, again, I'm a pretender to the throne. Normally, Aaron would say here, like, it won this Academy Award. It's on this list. I mean, this movie, it's The Silence of the Lambs. It, it's, it, it's reputation precedes itself. It won Best Picture. It won Best Director at the Academy Awards. It's on every top 100 movies of all time list. It's incredibly well regarded. One of the uh, shining examples, apparently, of Jonathan Demme's, like, versatility as a director. I've only seen this and um, uh, Talking Heads Stop Making Sense. So, uh, you so, know, your mileage may vary with actually, but between those two unfortunately are- this is your least favorite of his two movies that you've seen <laughs> right <clears throat> uh but 
Um, I do want to plug really quickly here. Uh, former guest, uh, frequent guest, uh, and contributor to the show, um, Natalie Marlin wrote a really fantastic piece uh, for the Trilon blog, Parasphere, about Silence of the Lambs, specifically centering on Goodbye Horses, a song by Q Lazarus that's uh, used in a key scene in this movie. Uh, you can read it. Link is in the show notes. It's called The Farewell to Horses. Please read it. Yeah. It informed a lot of um, exactly what I'm sure all three of us are going to talk about. I read it, read it before my rewatch of this movie, and it did give me a great new lens through which to see the movie. Um, some stuff that I feel embarrassed for not having picked up on in the first place, in the first place, but that's the effect of a good writer. So anyway, that's the end of the Natalie plug for right now. No, um, I mean, you should always read the Parisphere blogs. It's a really great way to watch the movies, but definitely don't miss this one, right? Yeah. Also, uh, shout outs to Natalie, because I think this was her sixth appearance or would have been if not for Toronto's abysmal internet capabilities apparently which means she's going to get the jacket we're going to send her the jacket pretty soon so look for that in the in the mail six of 250 she must be i'm trying to think between maybe seth seth uh jenny is up there she did a bunch of one car y with us uh Uh, dan has been on a good time on a lot of them seth has been on a bunch yeah yeah, yeah, I thought I said he def- Seth. Seth already got the Did jacket. You say Seth? He looks great, Seth, by the way. Seth he looks really good in the jacket. It's yeah, amazing. Cha-ching. Everybody, um, it, it's impossible not to look sexy in the panted trilobe jacket. So uh, that's your that's your sell. Be on this show more right. than six yeah, times. You know, yeah. you got to be on it more than six times, and then you get to look sexy in the jacket. It's a what? So uh, is it a sesquicentennial? Is that a two hundred and fifty? I forget how many or quarter quarter centennial. Anyway, uh, it's 250 episodes. Thank you for listening to our 250th. Um, this, you can find this movie, whatever. It's got a it's got a Criterion release. It's probably on your favorite streaming service or within one or two degrees of that. So check it out if you haven't watched it recently. It's really, really, really well worth watching or rewatching. Um, my girlfriend Sky told me that it is one of her favorite movies that she's seen at least five or six times, which is quite heartening because i figure nobody could really stomach watching this movie so many more times but it is intensely watchable um i find that this movie and on this rewatch uh i found that this movie is like in interesting ways again informed i i'll i'm not embarrassed to say pretty heavily by natalie's piece for perisphere uh the whole movie is like a bit of a, a challenge to not to get through but to um like to empathize to like, what were my, what did my notes say to every, see everyone as more than an object as more than, as, you know, individual people uh, to recognize their inherent interiority and like the complex humanity, humanity in each person. And it's not to a, a point of absurdity where you're looking to humanize every bad person on earth and uh, make no judgment, but to, in this specific case, um, you will say three edges, uh, uh, three points of a triangle formed by the FBI and Clary Starling and, um, well, I guess maybe more like a square FBI, Clary, Clary Starling, uh, Hannibal Lecter and Buffalo Bill as like individuals with presumptions made and with like a certain provenance that, that uh, precedes them. Natalie's piece is all about uh, the sort of like assumptions that are made about specifically Ted Levine, uh, Buffalo Bill early on in the movie uh, to like set the stage and the way that that character is framed and the way that that character is talked about in terms of being rather than a person, uh, being an object. And then that character is themselves accused of doing that. Uh, there's just a lot of different, uh, I guess you could say layers of meaning to this movie. Um, I found it like incredibly affecting, uh, uh Natalie's point that, uh, Buffalo Bill's, uh, like personality his, his very personhood, their very personhood is uh, sidelined whispered at, um, I think the phrases that uh, Natalie used included that uh, Bill, uh, the peaks that we get at Buffalo Bill as like a human um, are 
they become no more than clinical evaluation, his speculated history becoming marginalia just off camera, uh, because that implication does not fit within the boxes that Hannibal Lecter and Clarice Starling are seeking to put him within. We only catch glimpses of the failings that make Buffalo Bill the person we see on screen. We only live in the violent aftermath of those failings. Um, I guess I wanted to just give us a little uh, cushion to start our conversation about this movie on, because it is way more um, humanizing and empathetic a movie, I think, than it, its provenance, its certain like... I don't know. It's it's specifically its provenance as a horror movie and as a psychological thriller in the horror like space. Uh, sort of flattened a lot of the a lot of that nuance, I think. And um, I don't know. It's it's a, maybe a meaty place to start, but I wanted to see if you guys what you guys thought of that. Do you think that it's got uh, like where where where's what is it doing with that um, sort of uh, humanizing or or othering that like from a directorial standpoint you can see a lot of this movie as we are sort of fetishizing we are sort of glaring we are not uh like giving interior interiority or personality to this character i found quite the opposite uh and i feel like natalie's piece really dug into it really well but i wanted to get your opinions on the same topic yeah um this is my second watch of this movie and having seen a couple more of demi's movies since then um i was really struck by um, you use the word, or Natalie rather, use the word pathology. Um, I'd love to talk about the the uh, pathology of this movie, or maybe just rather this movie's pathological um, obsessions. I it's fascinating to compare it directorially to other works by Jonathan Demi because this has its own style and uh, like shot choices and um, directorial flavor that is like so totally removed and so obviously uh like deeply in conversation with the themes of the work itself um i found this movie like utterly meticulously constructed and constructed so well in um coordination with the themes right where like i i felt like there were there were this time around um lines from the movie from the characters that i like was my mouth was agape listening to them because they so well had been um, choreographed by the preceding movie, especially just visually, you know, I mean, when we're talking about first principles and we're talking about what it is to covet and to be coveted and how that defines the nature of all things, um, this movie's obsessed with that idea, right? From, from the very beginning, um, the, the way that the camera lingers on the eyes of people watching Starling in every room, the way scenes are blocked, the way that men are so much taller than she is, or the way that men, their eyes linger on her when she passes by them, the way that the camera lingers on men watching Starling right before the scene ends. Um, in the very first scene of this movie, the, the guy who comes to tell uh, Starling that Jack Crawford is looking for her, she runs out of the frame of the camera, and then the camera lingers behind this guy. And he just like watches her run away and the camera stays there for about four seconds. And it's very disquieting though. You don't really know why later on the movie visually picks up that, that language over and over again um, in every scene where uh, Starling is talking to anyone. And we always see the movie. I would argue almost always through Starling's perspective, the camera literally functions as her eyes at many different times during this movie. And eventually as Buffalo Bill's eyes, um, the, you can feel the, the covetousness, the desire 
and how it is charging the relationship between people and how it is altering perceptions on all side, um, and especially perceptions of themselves as they're being perceived, which is something I really want to talk about because I think it's huge here. And I think it fits really closely in with the, the empathy that you're describing, Jason. Um, but I just, I cannot believe how effectively this movie gets you thinking, trains you to think about the themes that it wants you to be thinking about. Um, and especially all towards this end of, um, the Hannibal Lecter and Starling conversations that are the focal point of this movie. They have always sort of been like the, the thing that this movie is remembered for. Um, they're shot exactly the same as almost every other conversation in this movie. And the effect, the effect is not to make them feel normal. It's to make every single conversation that occurs in this movie feel like an interrogation between two people to the, to the point where like, the Hannibal Lecter conversations become almost comforting because there is at least no pretense. She knows who Hannibal Lecter is. All of the other male characters in this movie are on one level or another doing the same thing to Clarice that Hannibal Lecter is. It's just that she knows that one of them is Hannibal Lecter. And that's a really fascinating. And so I guess what I'm saying, Jason, and I'm sorry, I kind of went far afield of it, but no, is please. that um, I... I agree with you that this is a deeply empathetic movie, but it arrives there in a very strange way for me, which is that I think the real horror of Hannibal Lecter when he's done right, and he's done maybe arguably the best in this movie, right? Like, or the, is that his psychological anal analysis of the human race and of people in general is always just right enough to be terrifying, right? Like his outlook on the world, the thing that gets to you about it in uh, Manhunter in Silence the Lambs in the Hannibal show is that he has some legitimate insight, right? He is legitimately a genius. And when he talks about how Starling, don't you know, like, don't you feel that everywhere you've ever been, you've been coveted, right? You've like, people have looked at you and they've wanted things from, from you and they've wanted to see themselves in a certain context because of the way that you're perceiving them. Um, he's right. He, he's defining what the movie has told us visually throughout the movie. And so, like by the end of this movie, like we, I think that it transforms your understanding of the relations between people in a way that can engender empathy, uh, because you are able to understand the how charged and how terrible, uh, Starling's relationship to her work and to men must be. But it also kind of accomplishes the opposite, right? Where like it really does get under your skin in this really disquieting, thematically informed way because it gets you to understand that like between you and everyone else, there has always been this really complicated sort of almost empathy eradicating, um, like charge of, of covetedness of like what it means to need something from somebody else and to need something for yourself from them. Um, and I, I think that that interrelation and in the way that the movie speaks to it um, just does this fascinating thing with these characters that, that I can't wait to talk about more, I guess. Totally. Yeah. Um, I'm glad we got into the realm of just how this film is uh, composed. I won't spend too much time on that now. Well, uh, too much time um because there's i don't know my neurons were firing with this rewatch um it's it typically you don't spend a time uh, a lot of time rather lingering on like shot reverse shot scenes in movies just because they're very like but this movie they, owns them dude they, like, they it's, it's... right they stand out when they're not done super well but this is like 
I mean, this movie does them better right. than and any it's other fucking movie. Crazy, right? Because it's like it's the most basic shot in the like lexicon of filmmakers, and this movie like fucking reinvents them. It's like this movie can just cut camera like close up middle of the frame face to camera close up middle of the face, and I'm like, holy fucking shit, right? And it, it's like, how did he do that? And and, and it's got to just be because of like the way that he introduces the the psychological theme of this movie into that conversation. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Those parts are done extremely well. And there are a lot of parts being snugly fit into extremely appropriate places um, that really like elevate this movie, I think. And thinking about the ways in which this movie takes the time formally to humanize characters like um, like Hannibal Lecter uh, and Buffalo Bill. Uh, I, Natalie gestured at it uh, in, in her write-up super well. And that that's something I need constant reminding of when going back to this movie and just like famously Anthony Hopkins doesn't spend a lot of time on screen, even that or rather even so he's just uh, like ultimately a tool to get to the ultimate problem in this movie, the main source of the conflict, which is uh, Ted Levine's character, Buffalo Bill, who spends probably even, even less time on screen. And yeah, that was a really good point. Natalie brought up right is in, I noticed it in my watch too, like Buffalo Bill has like, what, like six minutes of screen time maybe in this movie it's crazy how little time he has relative to the impact that he has in this movie yeah but one exactly and one thing demi does um demi and friends um the the whole gang the th- one thing that they Dem and co, use yeah. it, Dem and co incorporated um copyright uh one thing that a choice they made that i found myself really loving um whenever i come back to this but especially this time is that we get we get a couple lecture scenes relatively early like we don't waste a lot of time getting to them just uh, whether that's because of like hype before the movie's release or marketing or whatever just like we need to get to hannibal lecter early enough and then kind of distance ourselves from him for a little while so we can kind of let uh so we can let the appetite from grow um for lack of a better <laughs> phrase um but in those scenes, like the, and the writing is so strong that we're learning so much about like the monster that Hannibal Lecter is, um, through, you know, these, these men that are physically and figuratively towering over Clarice Starling. And so you, you kind of get the sense of like, yeah, what they're saying is very important, but also like these dudes are like microaggressing all over the place and shrugging her off. So the, there's like a lot of like a fun, um, Visceral, in a bad way, right? sort of. It, yeah. Like these, these are some of the most painful sort of like workplace microaggression sexism scenes I've ever seen in any movie. And like the movie doesn't linger on them. It's just like a part of the firmament of everyday existence for Starling, right? It's like every time she talks to a dude, the dude is like hitting on her, being passive aggressive, trying to establish some sort of authority. Like it's so clear that they want something from her because she's a woman at every moment of her like waking existence with these people. Right. Uh, the one exception to that rule, though, is Hannibal Lecter. Uh, we we learn about him from him and his interactions with Clarice Starling, where there is like that's where the I, I guess that me like taking a roundabout way to like how we start to feel a sort of empathy for Hannibal Lecter. Like despite the monster he is, he treats Clarice Starling like a person. He is he reads into her uh, and her livelihood or background eerily well. And you know, I mean, there's obviously a lot going. He wants to escape from prison no doubt um 
but at the same time, his sort of um, sociopathic uh, infusing of the mindset of, you know, if you want to catch a killer, you have to, in order to know a criminal, you need to know what yourself, you need, one needs to know oneself. And that's maybe how you read some of those. I'm not as um, fluent in like Hannibal Lecter uh, readings and, and other works as, as maybe you guys are. Um, but that's sort of what I, what I took away from those scenes and also sort of weaponizing, you know, just kind of visual, visual empathy. I don't know if this is too much of a stretch to say, but we're talking about how, um, how tiny little Jodie Foster is. Um, these aren't going to come up later in the episode, but five foot three is what Google tells me. Jody Dude, Foster it's, is it's fucking weaponized shortness in this movie too. Like it, it's so effective because yeah. like these, these dudes just fucking tower over her and you like, she's a badass obviously, but like also she, nobody has ever looked more like a student, right? Like she, you feel the fact that she's got to be like what? 23 or something uh, like constantly in this movie. Right. And the fact that um, whenever Hannibal Lecter is, uh, not whenever he's framed, but especially when he's in a scene against Jodie Foster's character, Anthony Hopkins is only five foot nine, but he's framed like a fucking six foot two, like built machine. And you see him, you know, up against other like human men, and he's either as tall or shorter than them. Um, yeah. So the, oh, man. Weird, so, like the, the visual scaling of, of that, I, th- I thought was really fascinating um it, it, it fascinates me every time i watch this movie and and like there's enough there to where i think it is being intentionally weaponized um but i don't know i've i've gone on about that enough but that's there's there's a lot of good stuff i think kicking around with how this movie attempts to if not fully humanize um you know insert elements of humanization to the the couple of um you know serial killers that are that are murking about in this movie yeah it there are there's a great like the the humanization aspect is i think maybe a symptom of like the the root uh, what it's trying to do. like i i'm getting ahead of myself but one of the things that i foregrounded when i was talking about this movie earlier was the like provenance this movie has what this movie has come to be and rightly so you watch a movie about a serial killer who is portrayed as a like demented mentally unstable individual who wants to be who quote as as Hannibal Lecter quotes uh like thinks that he's a transvestite but he isn't he was rejected from um sexual assignment (laughs) surgery before violence and like yeah rightly so you could see this you will likely if you haven't before and maybe if you have before you will see this movie and say well this is not very like respectful or tra- like a, a, a like a inclusive or like understanding of the struggles of people of, of you know non heterosexual cisgender identities like again fair and rightly so I think that what like that effect and what the movie is trying to do what Demi and uh, screenwriters and uh, Tak Fujimoto is a name that's come up a lot recently in watching and thinking about this movie the director of photography I think what the crew was trying to do was a different thing and I'm not like only crediting Natalie's writing for this understanding but largely like this is part of what clued me into it uh, is that there's a very intentional focus on what agency these people had everybody at least all of the like first uh, like primary characters if not the secondary and tertiary focus on what agency they have and who they are and who they're trying to be as people uh, and when it is and isn't like afforded them what 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 degree they have there's like I, I I took a quote down early uh, because it happens pretty early on. Um, I don't know. Maybe I didn't write it down. Uh, it's like, it's not early on specifically the point I'm talking about, but the, the scene that got me really thinking about like that 
patterning of recognizing agency in another and when it's been taken and sort of like on what terms, so to speak, uh, was when Clarice is charged with uh, like reviewing the the body of, I forget the character's name, but one of the young women who's been kidnapped or kidnapped and uh, and killed by Buffalo Bill and partially skinned. She was found in a river. It's a really gross scene, obviously. Um, it's the scene where they put petroleum jelly on their lips to try and or under their unbelievably nose to, effective. Very, I almost, very effective. I, the like, first time I watched this, I don't really feel this way this time, but the first time I watched this, I almost wish they hadn't shown the body just because like like that scene where they all put the the jelly on their noses and then they still react in in like yeah. abject I'm like holy shit like I've never been more terrified that they're about to show something yes and like that you get sideways glances at the body and stuff it's it's very effective in its use of restraint i think that's a whole other conversation that sings in concert with this um but that's that scene in specific and like that broadest arc where she's learning about the young woman she's reviewing pictures of her she's learning about her and what she liked to do and all this kind of stuff um you see largely through Clary's through not Clary Starling's performance, Jodie Foster's performance as Clary Starling, you see this like recognition of it's obviously a pity that this person is dead. It's obviously that, you know, that it's a tragedy that like life was taken from this world. Also, uh, there is an incredible, like, what is it? What are the mechanisms by which it was taken? Not, you know, a, a bullet wound or a stab wound. It was like a removal of agency from this, from this person to become who they wanted to be there. Presumably, uh, you know, uh, like a late teenager or maybe in early mid twenties, obviously a person in, ch- in changing in, in still in becoming, um, with the, like, uh, the pupa that's left in her throat and everything. Um, there's, uh, like during that examination of the body, she sees the, the mark of the man who did this to her, of the person who did this to her. Uh, and she sees like the life that le- that has left that person and what she was before. And like, she she's in, and that's only after we've seen like, Clarice's assumptions about what this person could have been. She sees like a youthful, uh, vibrant young woman in these school yearbook photos and stuff. Um, I think that is like the underpinning magic of this movie is that it is about those, um, like those changing of roles. Like you, you, you see, I guess like the stunted changing of roles, right? Like the, the, the most clearly, transformation, most exactly. Most clearly. And obviously between Buffalo Bill, excuse me, as an assigned male serial killer and Buffalo Bill as uh, desiring to be a woman like that, like a person who is in, in transition, who's prevented from like, does not have the agency has been denied sex reassignment surgery has had, uh, you know, many trials and tribulations. The book apparently goes a lot more into what sort of childhood um, James gum had. Uh, again, I think this is a little detail that sings. James was just a misspelling of the name James or Jamie that nobody bothered to correct. <laughs> so this person wasn't even fully able to become like a, a person with a, with a real name and before it was like taken from them. And it's just like, I, I hate to say it's completely pitiful or pitiable, but it's like, that is an incredible point of empathy. I think is to see all of these people, Clary Starling going from being a trainee, uh, you know, a daughter of a cop and somebody who has significant personal trauma from the past and what she wants to be. She wants to be somebody who can bring justice and light and hope to the world, et cetera. Like, you know, pretty classic story, but she's in the, she's literally in transition. She's in training from there. Um, uh, maybe Hannibal Lecter stands out because he's sort of already gone past that transformation. And like, like you said, he is, she recognizes him as Hannibal Lecter because he's the only full yeah. realized I, human being. No, maybe. I'm going to argue I'm really that he has a point, character but. arc. Uh, in I, this movie as well, I, it's I very look forward, distinct. I look forward to to digging into that too. But, um, but I, oh, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, like it, it is. Once I had that in my brain, and maybe it'll be hard to shake this whole read. But once I had that in my brain about like the taking of agency and the empathy that that sort of inspires in people who witness it from from either end, or even in just the you know vertical middle slice, um, 
is like from the very opening scenes, Jack Crawford is assigning uh, Clarice Starling this this detail. She's still in training. She's not even a full FBI agent yet. Uh, and she, he he's telling her, you're going to in, uh, interview uh, Hannibal Lecter. He's probably not going to be very helpful. But if he's not, if he doesn't cooperate, just give me the objective details. Tell me what he's wearing. Tell me what he's drawing. If he's drawing anything. Um, and you can tell that like in that character moment, it's obviously like he's wanting to follow procedure and he's just wanting to get, get anything he can. But implicitly, they're just looking for things to base an assumption on. They're looking to bypass the entire concept of understanding, empathy, or like the um, like forming of a whole person, of a whole complex person, and just say, tell me what this prisoner is drawing. Tell me like objective details that I can use to build an assumption about him and build a psychological profile. It's very mind hunter. It's very like it's very that time in uh, psychological profiling from the FBI specifically. I find it like the the setting, the plot contrivances of a you know uh, of, of a serial killer being sought and you know through another serial killer being like incredibly in concert like like you were saying Harry where the themes of this movie are incredibly in concert with how well it works as a thriller movie but at the same time I feel like to judge it as it is a directly like uh, uh, attacking or transphobic or maybe uh, mocking or deriding uh, trans identity maybe in my view misguided maybe like a, a misreading of what's being shown and and the text and the context with which it's being shown a perfectly normal reading i think yeah, that it I, just, I think again i'm not the preeminent uh voice on it but i just feel like especially with you know critical context behind it now i feel like there's a lot more going on there about like the viewer's ability to empathize and like seeing that same journey being taken by a number of characters in the movie for toward a number of different ends uh you know, again, I'm not the I'm not the person to really yeah, be the no, really um, comment on it. But there's a lot there to talk about. I'm really glad you brought up a lot of this stuff. I'm really glad we, in particular, got to the place of agency and desire because, like I mentioned it before, but I really think that Hannibal Lecter's um, unpacking of Marcus Aurelius's first principles is the codex for understanding this movie. Like, I really think that the opening. Um, like cue that that should get you to read this movie is like what do all of these people want what do all people in general want how do their desires how do what they covet define them and what do they need to get that desire fulfilled and i think that specifically thinking about what they need is the big thing in this movie because the movie's answer to this question is in this really profound and terrifying and sad way it's each other Right. It's it's that we we require outside validation, external validation in order to achieve our internal agency, in order to self-actualize. We require to be perceived by other people as the person we want to be. That is a terrifying thing. Right. That is an impossible thing, because, again, like. I think that much of the horror of this movie comes from the fact that that is impossible basically for any woman because anyone like man or woman, they require so much of women because of the way that, that our society works. They desire so much about women, not just to be seen as sexually attractive uh, or to, to like dominate a woman, but like, a lot of other things in a lot of other shades, right? They need to be seen as professional. They need to be seen as tough. They need to be seen as domineering or uh, imposing, right? Like I think at the beginning of this movie, for instance, Hannibal's great desire is to be seen as a God figure, right? I think that's what he wants. And then we have to examine like what happens when 
we don't get those things. What happens when, for instance, Starling can't be perceived in the self-actualized way she wants to be because Mm -hmm. she's rubbing up against everybody else's own needs and desires? Everybody else needs to see her as something else, right? As a trainee, as a woman that's attracted to them. Everybody everybody that she sees in that opening scene where she's heading from like the wilderness into Jack Crawford's office, every man is like polishing weapons, doing the most like toxically, militaristically masculine thing. And they're leering at her. They're leering or they're like giving a kind hey there kiddo smile but and it, it feels very it's past- all yeah. shades of the same exactly uh yeah the, the same infantilization the same condescension um that that she faces everywhere and that we are trained to see because she's our pov character and to, to my way of thinking like the reason why we get so little buffalo bill in this movie is because we're already trained to understand him through starling because like that like all of these things right like what happens like what do you want like what does buffalo bill want he wants to transform he wants to like himself in his mind his pathology is that to to be liked is to be coveted that's the only way he can understand desire is to covet something because you know and you can read into his backstory but like i think that's because that was the only way he was ever seen as desirable mm. uh i i think that like he he can only he literally makes women into objects that he can wear that he can put on so that he can be perceived as they were perceived right so he is so desperate for achieving this um this like desire to be desired to be fuckable right in his words in the in the ugliest way possible but but it is a shade of what everybody else in this movie wants right that's the thing about Hannibal Lecter that's so frightening is that on some level it's it's a lot like with Manhunter right where like the the thing about Manhunter not to digress too far but that that movie does so brilliantly is it it demonstrates how even the red dragons like utterly horrifying warped uh, pathology, it stems from the same thing, right? And these these ideas are so understandable. Like, what is it like? I there's a, even in uh in to go to another one in Hannibal, right? It's like, what does anybody want? They want to be seen and understood, right? And it's it's like I think the really great empathizing force in this movie is, and in all of the the Hannibal franchise, is that it says that like. No matter how strange and and grisly and upsetting that uh, desire makes you or whatever it, it makes you do, the the core is something very human, right? Like all of these characters are at their hearts very human because they're just desperate to be wanted. They're desperate to get what they want, to be self-actualized, and to achieve that from someone else. And it's the the rub the the sort of like the tension that develops is the fact that none of these characters can receive what they need from each other and that's true of buffalo bill the way it's true of hannibal lecture the way it's true of star it just so happens that that's how it manifests in all of these different ways it depends on what they need and why they need it but all of them are trying to achieve that they're trying to achieve the self-actualization that they need by being perceived by others so that they can themselves perceive themselves the way they they need to be um and i i think that like there's there's this really fascinating and great um natalie touched on this a little bit in her piece and you touched on it earlier but there's a great critique of psychology nested in that because it's sort of like like when you when you um sort of coldly analyze somebody's pathology from the outside this way, you're losing so much about what it feels like to be that 
to inhabit to inhabit that to inhabit that lack of fulfillment of desire and how that is actually so much more important and motivating than any sort of like deterministic backstory that that we can read in in this sort of clinical sense right so it's like there is this sense in which like that's that's what makes Hannibal Lecter so frightening in this movie is he understands that right like everybody else is constructing psychological profiles whereas Hannibal Lecter is like but I I actually kind of viscerally understand how a psychological profile motivates because of this first principle idea that and he, I and have. he leverages it like to yeah, manipulate of course. obviously right yeah. right but to get ironically to get what he wants right like, like yeah. <laughs> he is he is subject to his own sort of methodology where like as as everybody wants something in this movie Hannibal Lecter wants something I think and we'll get into this later but like I think what he wants shifts because I, I think that like he kind of legitimately falls in love with uh Clarice Agent Starling and it it sort of changes who he is at a certain point not in a fundamental sense right he's still a cannibal murderer but um i i think that he he is able to sort of empathize with her and in doing so he unlocks this new part of himself and i think that there's something big happening there um Hmm. but but just to use that right to to use this as a framing device and then to because like i think that what all of the hannibal like um franchise does is it um it it is about sort of erasing the um the bridge between you know love and hate and identification and um total disidentification by like thinking through the the irony of hunting people right and like to to want someone to be a man hunter to be Clary Starling looking for Buffalo Bill you have to want them right in like both senses of the word you have to understand them and to understand them is to grow closer to them and it's just impossible not to do that and i i think that there's something really fundamental about the human condition wrapped up in that relationship that this movie gets at where it's like hey to be understood is to want to understand and to want to understand is to empathize and so like all of us no matter how warped our um, attempts to do this become in the sort of humanist sense are doing that right we are we are craving and seeking understanding from one another it just so happens that the way that we go about doing that and the way that we need that understanding it creates this terrible tension because they're often they're so often mutually exclusive especially when what we want is something that is so ugly as it is in the case of Buffalo Bill or in the case of literally all the men in this, right? There's this great line where it's like, like Hannibal basically tells Starling like, and uh, apologies, we'll do a content warning, but like, Oh, like I want to rape and murder you. How does that make me any different from literally any man you've ever met? And it's like, we know that on some level it's like, he's not wrong. And like, but it, and so it's it's amazing that the movie can be that dark while also positing this very humanistic, very empathetic um, sort of like theory for why that occurs, right? And I, I think that the movie can do that really successfully. Um, and so now I'm rambling too, Jason. But like like I said, I I, I don't disagree with with you. Like I I would never begrudge any person, particularly a transgender person, like discarding this movie just on the um the grounds that Buffalo Bill is a transphobic depiction of of transgender people. Um, but I, I really do think that like unfortunately, um, and we can talk about how well like misguided or not this was, but like he is very clearly the symbolic heart of this movie. Like what what he wants and why he wants it and why that makes him turn to 
um, transsexualism and, and whether or not he's correct in doing that is at the heart of the gender politic and human politics of this movie, I think, in a way that makes him really indispensable um, to, to at least my reading of the movie. Um, and in a way that like kind of makes, and again, like this is just my opinion, but kind of makes the, like the discussions of whether or not he is a transphobic character almost, um, like besides, beside the, the point in some ways, if, if that makes sense. Um, and, uh, yeah, I don't know. I just, I, I think he's really, really important as all of these characters are to the, the construction of the story and, and what it's trying to say for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I'll dip back into um, Clarice Starling territory and I think eventually find our way back to Buffalo Bill. Um, but one thing I found myself being on the lookout for with this rewatch was just thinking about, I don't know, when people think about this movie, I mean, they think about a lot of things towards the forefront, I'm sure, is Hannibal Lecter, uh, the Anthony Hopkins performance. And it just seems to be kind of a given that like, oh, yeah, and Jodie Foster won Best Actress, da, 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 we all get, we all know and accept this. I'm just thinking about like what, thinking about her performance, how her character is written, and thinking about what people must have seen. Um, and like she turns in like a, a spectacular performance. Uh for sure. But the, the types of things I, like, I, I found myself latching on to Jodie Foster's, um, like line readings, uh, like the types of things, like, especially when, um, the, the Fujimoto, you know, perspective is, is on her. She's in these intense, um, close up shot, reverse shot scenarios. Um, what, what struck me, uh, especially in the, the, I guess the first act of the movie, the, the early couple scenes she's in is that she, like she says the words, like the words always find their way out. It's just like her presenting, like they sometimes stumble out and you can tell when, like when she tries to telegraph um, like a, like a ham fisted segue or whatever Hannibal Lecter says when she is like giving him the questionnaire or um, when she thinks she has like a real zinger, she's like, Oh, that's sounds like something Migs would say. just like the words find their way out. And like the important thing is that she said them but there's still like an, like an undercurrent of like, there's, there's something festering beneath within her that is either like hesitant to like say these things or like a, a, a fear for how she will be you know, and how her industry or, or, you know, Hannibal Lecter or anybody else yeah, like, perceives and, her. And she's so hyper away, aware of being perceived, right? Like the, the movie takes multiple points to step, to step back and like have her converse with Jack Crawford and just be like, Hey, I didn't like it when you said that because it undermined my authority in the eyes of the people around me. Like it, the movie makes it really clear that like Clarice Starling is like very, very aware of how she is perceived. And that is affecting the way that she is like holding herself and presenting herself in the world. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. And then by the time you, we get to even halfway through, um, this film is structured fascinatingly. That's, you know, another eight hours that uh, I'm sure I could spend on that because I, I love focusing on that sort of stuff too. But the, you can tell she's kind of gotten into her groove, um, you know, it, around the time, like when they when she's helping with that, um, that autopsy or whatever you want to call it. And she's, you know, talking into the, the tape recorder. She's telling the cops to clear out. Like those words find their way out of her mouth a little more confidently. And then when she goes, um, you know, she talks to the bug guys about that, um, that larva or whatever, you know, that cocooned moth um that that she finds and um 
bug guy dropping dropping lines trying to hit on her um and like she she, yeah uh, yeah something like that uh and she like she plays it off so smoothly like the clary starling from 72 hours ago is isn't like she would have handled that entirely different but she's just like oh are you are you hitting on me are you flirting with me um just like i don't know really like great like tangible progression of her just based on her interaction with um with these men specifically these men in you know in in her industry you know in her office uh, effectively and and by the end of it i i found just i, I don't know i found myself thinking it it wasn't it was never going to be a matter of you know when she confronts buffalo bill you know if she if she had the option to go down and pursue this serial killer this like this intense criminal into a into a dark basement uh, on their home turf it, it was it never a question about whether clary sterling was the type of person to do that because clearly like that that confidence that's that i don't know that that sense of of pride in in herself and her work like it was always there waiting to be perceived waiting to be validated it was never a question of whether or not she would go down into the basement and pursue it. it was just a matter of what whether or not she got that opportunity and mm-hmm. when that when that cross-cutting you know that kind of famous scene you know where there's like oop they got you they're, they're at the wrong house um when that happens there's oh man like a, a, it's a, there's a still like it, it hits so fucking hard like i i knew it was coming this time and still i was like oh my god yeah there's a flicker of fear for sure like understanding that clary starling is is in immense danger but there's also like i, I guess i don't know me the benefit of having watched this movie a number of times up to this point watching that scene again but like knowing that she now has the opportunity to to prove herself in a way that Jack Crawford would have never otherwise allowed uh otherwise allowed and there is something bittersweet about her you know being able to emerge from that basement a different stronger person and her you know for going back to to buffalo bill ostensibly kind of killing the 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 soul of you know the backbone of the movie um and you know buffalo bill being a character who maybe you know never never got the opportunity you know they tried and tried to you know get this um this type of procedure you know that that uh gender affirming surgery um taken care of that never came to fruition tried to find another way to to manifest um his own destiny uh, destiny and he died in a basement um shot to death mm-hmm. like there's there's something we're talking about the ways in which this movie humanizes um criminals uh and and you know everybody that it depicts uh, humanizes Clarice Starling um and maybe it just by virtue of this this conversation and recency bias and, and talking with you guys but that's uh, that that scene rings a little a little more bittersweet a little more hollow um you know just kind of kind of thinking about it but but anyway Clarice Starling uh yeah. a, 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 a real I, one a cop but you know, yeah, fucker. I, I really love the way that you characterize Starling because I think you're really getting at the heart of like both. There's a really fantastic, like essential gender subversion, um, not on the part of like, like gender itself, but on our expectations as viewers um, without even realizing it, we're trained to see Starling the way that everybody else in the movie sees Starling, right? Like it's, it's in her shortness. It's in the fact that Jodie Foster is so like almost adorable in this movie in, in some ways. Um, the fact that like we are so used to seeing her opposite Hannibal Lecter, who is like the ultimate imposing presence. Um, the fact that she is characterized early on as still a student. She like everything about her suggests babe in the woods, Right constantly that's what that's what the movie wants us to believe it's not true right and in fact like what we learned through this movie is that starling in my opinion is the only character in this movie who is who she thinks she is or who she wants to be like even when we get right down to the the um 
psychology of her character and the the thing that makes Hannibal fall in love with her, right, is like even in her darkest, most um like uh haunted and um most regretful moments, we would expect some sort of like vulnerability that that would um that that would sort of like refute her idea of herself the way that that we're all afraid right that that our deepest darkest secrets refute our ideas of ourselves in fact like i would argue that that the silence of the lambs um like sequence is is the greatest like evidence that starling is exactly who she thinks she is right like her greatest regret in life is like i wasn't strong enough to save this helpless creature that i wanted to help I wasn't like powerful enough yet. I need to become stronger so that I can silence the lambs, right? It's like uh, th- throughout the movie because we're like men, right? Because because the the camera lens arguably is one that is that is making her out to be a babe in the woods. We see her as a lamb, right? Like literally, we see her as the person who needs to be rescued. That's not what happens, right? At the end of this movie, Starling literally rescues her lamb. I think that's why Hannibal loves her, right? I I think, like, he says at the end of the movie, like, the world is more interesting with you in it. I think that, like, it's because she actually, um, like, is the person she's pretending to be, quote-unquote, which is not really true in anybody else's case, especially Hannibal's, which which is a really interesting element of Hannibal, is that I think in this movie especially, I think he's something of, um... Uh, a pretender um but but certainly buffalo bill is as well right like and and again like this is where the whole gender thing gets a little bit dicey but but it is it's like buffalo bill is quote-unquote not really a transsexual he just thinks he is and like i think that the movie's reasoning behind that is that like he doesn't understand what it is to be a woman because he is still perceiving women through a male's sort of point of view right like to him woman means desirability it, it means like, would you fuck me? I would fuck me. I would fuck me so hard, right? Like that's what he, that is his perception of what it means to be a woman. He wants to be fuckable and he wants to want to fuck himself because he wants to love himself. That's the only way he can express it. That's not what Jodie Foster wants, right? Obviously, that's not what Clary Starling wants. As a woman, what she actually wants is to be perceived as and to perceive herself as a champion, right? As somebody who is saving the day, somebody strong. Um and th- that is the sort of fundamental difference between them. And I think why she is able to su- succeed where Buffalo Bill can't, right, is that, that she is actually able to perceive something outside of this sort of binary of desirability um, for herself. And I, I think that, like, she gets Hannibal to see it, too. And that's why Hannibal has this change of sort of change of heart uh, by the end where um, instead of just sort of manipulating her and um, trying to get something out of her, he's actually like very much, I would argue in her corner by the end of this movie, even when he escapes from prison, um, even when he goes after Chilton, he is sort of a person who has discovered that there are people who are interesting quote unquote in the world. And I think Hannibal's conception of interesting is that their self-actualization is true is something that, that they can actually achieve um, the way that, that she does in this movie. And and I really love that. And I really love it as a subversion of what we think, right? Because like, we're so used to like, oh, when a woman wants to be something other than quote unquote, what she is, read a woman, she has to be humbled, right? She has to be put in her place. This movie doesn't do that. It does the opposite. It's like, actually like, 
Clarice Starling is in defiance of what the world would make her the person she sees herself as the person who is capable of silencing the lambs. Um, I think it's, it's really triumphant, right? It's a, it's a real, like, like for a, a movie that is so obsessed with agency and the, the taking of agency and what it means to have agency taken. It's a, it's it, Starling earns her agency, right? She, she's able to have it. And, and I think she does it by giving it to others as well, which is mm-hmm. really something. Yeah. I, I, it makes me wonder, like specifically, what you, what you and Cody were, were both just saying about, like how she, like she gets closer to actualization through like her conversations with Hannibal and her dogged pursuit of, like you know, her her uh, the success of the mission essentially to prove to herself that she can do this, that she can like uh, save another, that she can uh, silence the lambs, so to speak. It makes me think, like, and I'm sorry, but we don't do this often. I. Unfortunately, the rubric that comes to my head is that stupid fucking Harry Potter quote about uh, neither can live while the other survives between Harry Potter and Voldemort. I, I know, I know there must be better touchstones for that, but I'll allow it. For, forgive me. Please I was proceed, like, counselor. I was like, I've been reading those books since I was like six. Um, but like, it reminds me of that, but like, neither can like, uh, like actualize while the other uh, stays standing without bullets in their body kind of thing. You know, like they, there is the part of that is do like, um, they can't both have that actualization at the same time. When I mean, I mean, when I say that, I mean Clarice and Buffalo Bill specifically, as like the two will say, like, uh, like will say anchor points of that of the actual plot. Um, the story, of course, involves more Hannibal than actually Buffalo Bill, but specifically the plot she pursues him, and I think it's like it's part due to like the uh, empathy flattening um uh, you know agency robbing capital p process of the fbi and more broadly criminal psychology and investigation um and she she's up against that she like even if she is the type of person who you know takes a lamb into the woods in hopes of just saving just one even if she's a, a, at her heart like an empathetic person who wants to bring good and and justice to the world and that, that kind of thing she is up against a system that uh, is giving her the only thing giving her the tools to do that um, is is a pro is a system that like funnels it all toward just a like violent retributive end right um, and so buried in all of what you were saying about uh, like the words Clarice uses and the way that she speaks and uh, like the sort of deference she shows when she needs to but you can sort of tell there's a defiance behind it kind of thing do we see um, within that like. A, a genuine desire to see and accept Bill as more than like the object of study that he supposedly sees other women as it, it, like, is that, is that why she yeah. ends up killing him at the end is because they can't both have this, you know, karmically or, or metaphysically, they can't yeah, both have well, this full actualization given the systems is, they're surrounded by. This is where I apologize, right? Because I feel like I always bring it back to dialectics, but like, I think, I think that you like really well, like described the nature of the dialectical struggle between she and Buffalo Bill, right? Is that like Clarice has found this alternative way toward the, the mutual recognition and giving of agency. And it's something that, and it's, it's that if, if I recognize you as who you are, you can recognize me as who I am. She did it with Hannibal. Right. She she was capable of seeing Hannibal as not just a monster, but as the, the man he wanted to be perceived as. And in turn, he she perceived or he perceived her as the woman she wanted to be perceived as maybe for the first time. Um, but 
that that is the exact opposite of the relationship to attaining agency that we have been told by all of the men in this movie, especially Buffalo Bill is the only way to attain it, right? And especially Hannibal himself, right? Like there's this, it's a, it's an incredibly potent metaphor, right? That Hannibal literally eats his victims. He, he like takes their agency into himself physically so that he can be the person he wants to be. Right. And in the process, he literally eliminates them from existence. He, he right. is consuming their agency to drive his own agency. Buffalo Bill is doing the same thing. He's literally like he sees something he covets. He un- has understood because of the way that he was raised, because of the world that he lives in, that the only way he can become what he wants is by taking it away from somebody else. Taking he it away literally from literally wear it. Yeah. Yeah. He wants to wear like women's skin so that he can be a woman. In the process, he has to take that away. I think Clarice finds another way, right? And I, I think that the dialectical battle at the end of this um, movie represents that, represents that unfortunately, right, for Buffalo Bill, for Hannibal, that's not actually how agency works. You can't actually successfully become, you can't transform into the, the thing you want to be by taking it away from somebody else. It doesn't work that way. You'll never achieve it, right? Like Buffalo Bill will unfortunately never achieve what he, what he's setting out to do because he, he has lost the option to do it for real. Uh, and because he, uh, his way of going about it is further perpetuating this, um, this, uh, you know, this evil zero sum, uh, agency eradicating force, which actually robs him of his own at the same time. And Starling is able to transcend that because she is able to find this alternative route, right? Where she is able to say like, actually like the, the way to go about being perceived actualizing on my own terms is by granting that to other people as well, granting it to Hannibal to a lesser extent, granting it to Buffalo Bill, right? I like there is even like, you know, she finds Buffalo Bill. She, she can do that by understanding him the way that nobody else can to do that. She has to accept it, right? She has to understand that, that he is actually who he says he is or she is. Um, and I, I think that that's totally where this movie falls. And it's a, it's a wildly humanistic, empathetic reading, right. To get at, uh, especially like given how dark this ending is and particularly the, the ending of the movie is where Hannibal's still out there. Um, but I think that like in the in the weirdest possible way and in a really appropriate way for this movie, I think that like even the ending is triumphant, right? It's like even Hannibal has understood that like his project to find someone who is interesting, to find someone who deserves to exist by his standard was successful. And that that's changed his outlook on the world and maybe even on himself, though he's definitely still going to eat children. Um, yeah. So – but but uh, he's actualized now. He's a self-actualized cannibalistic yeah. murderer. So we we root for a self-actualized king. Um, I will say it always does get me. I always forget the final line, like the stinger line from him. I and for some reason it always fucking gets me as like this was an incredibly stark, like metaphysically compelling movie with you know really really heavy themes running throughout and some really dire stuff that happened and it made me think about how i relate to people around me and how i like empathize with others and then he ends it on the fucking best stinger of all time i'm meeting or i'm having a friend for dinner unfucking believable it's it's like a slapstick joke at the end of I don't know. I've never seen The Godfather, but at the end of The Godfather, I assume there's not a slapstick joke. You've never seen The Godfather. Godfather? 
There's kind of Kill Bill, in, in one way the most uh, famous slapstick joke in history at the end of The Godfather, but that's sort of neither here nor there. Uh, but um, also, just this is kind of a junk drawer thought, I suppose. But like, uh, you know that like that scene is set in where are they at the very end of the movie? Do you I, remember? Oh, They're in oh, like a tropical. It wasn't St. Paul, Minnesota. <laughs> <laughs> no, it was not St. Paul, Minnesota. Uh, anyway, um, literally the reason why they're in that tropical setting is because um, uh, Jonathan Demi had $500,000 left over because they didn't shoot a flashback scene uh, where Starling, the, the little girl, rescues the lamb. Originally, they had meant to insert that monologue between Jodie Foster and um, Anthony Hopkins with a flashback scene. But then as they were shooting, Jonathan Demi was like, actually like watching these two actors is so much better than anything I could possibly do with a flashback, which best choice of the movie, probably that's the best scene in the movie. Um, so, uh, and because of that, he had all this money left over and he was just like, ah, fuck it. Let's just all go to the Bahamas for a week. <laughs> and so he took the entire crew to the Bahamas and to make it like a work expense, they shot that final scene where Hannibal walks off into like the crowd. And it's like, first of all, great choice ar- yeah. artistically. Second of all, what a fucking Chad, like what a King. He's just like, Hey, we're all going to the Bahamas. We're going to hang out. It's going to be great. We're going to buy a $25 wig for, uh, I for really Anthony hope, Hopkins to wear at the end there. <laughs> we're going to shoot really hope seven Ted minutes Levine of footage. Got to, uh, got to go on that trip, even though he was uh, deceased <laughs> by the time of that film. Yeah. I, I want to find him in like at the 4k version and just find him poking around in the background. Uh, well, that sounded a hell of a lot like a junk drawer thought, actually. Uh, are we ready to go there? Should I consider this the, the meat of the junk drawer, the meat um, and the junk, the slapping? Just one final thought, I guess I have is that um, I, I'm really, I was really, really uh, gratified by the denouement in this movie, right? Like after Buffalo Bill is killed and when Clarice uh, goes to her graduation ceremony, literally she graduates, like characters, our character arc's not subtle in this movie, really well done. Um, The music doesn't shift at all, right? Like we're still in a horror movie. She's still being leered at. There's still the awkwardness at the party. Her last exchange with Jack Crawford is very strange in a lot of ways. He's like, oh, I'm not so good at this. And they like touch hands. And it's exactly like when Hannibal touched her hand through the cage um, earlier in the movie. Uh, they're cutting into an FBI cake, right? She's going on to be an FBI agent. The world hasn't changed, right? Like, I think it's so important, especially for a horror movie like this, that like, hey, Clarice has found another way. There is hope. There is this sense that like we can create a better means of granting one another agency, but that is not the state of the world, right? Buffalo Bill, Hannibal Lecter, their way of doing things is the way of doing things. That is what the FBI is. That is what the world is. Like that, I think it's really important that like the last scene we see of this is Hannibal Lecter is still out in the world. Evil is still out in the world. There are still people who are going to try to eradicate other people's agency mm-hmm. in order to consume it and uh, gain it for themselves, right? Like we end on this this really scary note of like Hannibal going off into the world and Clarice. The last time we see her, she is repeatedly saying Doctor Lecter's name into the phone to try to get him to stay on the line, and he's gone, right? And it's sort of like you know, like the the fucking the dialectic battle, the cosmic battle of wills goes on. It's like it's not right. this is not something that is solved. Like yeah, sexism even- is not solved uh, in pe- <laughs> like this, the sort of like imperial domination of one by the other has not been solved. Like we are still in this world. Yeah. That, it's that created these things. It's a real 
posturing. Like even that handshake you're talking about where Jack Crawford shakes her hand, like it is the same angle. It's the same direction, it's, but it's a it's distinct, <laughs> it's a completely different handshake. Like it's a very just professional one and done where obviously Hannibal did the creepy thumb thing and it's distinctive. And it's like, it indicates, oh, I'm going beyond sort of the social prescription of a handshake to indicate, I know why we're shaking hands. I know, I know who you are sort of beyond who you present to me where Jack Crawford just shakes her hand and fucks off, but it's in the exact same framing, exact same shot again. Tech Fujimoto for the win on that one for the win. That's like a, again. the one problem with this movie is that shout outs to Scott Glenn. I'm sure he's a great actor. I was fully just superimposing Lawrence Fishburne over his character at all times <laughs> in this movie. Anytime, I feel like any time they called him Jack Crawford, I was like, that's yeah. not Jack Crawford. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like I was just like literally like in my mind, I was just swapping in like Lawrence Fishburne. And what's fucked up is he would have been so goddamn hot in this role in the 90s because yeah. he would have been younger. He would have been Larry Fishburne as the Trilon would Larry. call him. And like, I don't know. I I think it's probably better because I didn't, I don't want sexual tension between Jack Crawford and Clary Starling. But like if Larry Fishburne was on the scene, it would be a very different movie in a lot of ways. <laughs> There'd be a lot more weird sexual tension. Uh, okay, I will actually consider that. Like, we're in junk drawer for my for my uh, tastes. Cody, did you have anything for for our junk drawer thoughts? Um, not much. Uh, Anthony Heald plays uh, Chilton. Shout out to him. He's really good at. He's a horrifying yes. asshole. <laughs> he's the jaw. He's so good at. Yeah, he's great at playing an asshole in things. Um, it's so, so funny. He's, so, he's so good at it that you almost want to see the scene where he gets it, right? It's like, ah, Jonathan, we could shoot one more scene where Hannibal actually eats that motherfucker. <laughs> like, I would love to see that. Like, it's super right. unnecessary, and I don't actually think the movie should have it, but, like, kind of wanted to see it. What uh, You say he's an asshole, in, or he's good at playing an asshole in other things. Are there any other roles you can think of that he's... Because I, I, I just know him yeah. as that face, but can't play other right. roles. Right, I... I can't um I can't speak for his t- I think he's like a, a big TV guy as well. Um he's only got 30 some film credits. Uh the movie Accepted, which I've seen way too many times. Uh he's an asshole in Accepted. I just saw Deep Rising. Uh he's kind of a, a shady shifty character in uh mm-hmm. in Deep Rising. Um I've not seen A Time to Kill or uh The Pelican Brief and it's been a while since I've seen The Client, but it seems like he might be good at playing a, a shithead in like courtroom dramas. Yeah, a so shithead he also- in every world. He reprises his role as Chilton uh, in the yes. Red Dragon uh, movie, which really? is uh, another remake of Manhunter, but Edward Norton plays... Uh, oh, I've uh, seen Will Graham. Graham. Yeah, Will yeah. Graham. I haven't seen it. I've heard it's not very good, but... I gotta see it, too. Yeah, yeah. and also, I, uh, in case you didn't notice from uh, how much I've been talking, I'm a really big fucking fan of Manhunter, <laughs> the Michael Mann D- film. Yep, yep. Uh, so you, I... You know who plays, uh, you know who plays uh, Dollarhide in Red Dragon? Oh, wait, 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 yes, wait. it's Ray Fiennes. It is. Yeah, it's Ray which Fiennes. is fucking crazy. And also, like, wow. I bet he kills it. That's a really I good. Does. I mean, Tom Noonan was there's, so yeah. There's no beating good, Tom Noonan. He's he's yeah. the goat. But uh, right. yeah, Godspeed. Uh, excellent. Okay, then uh, that is the end of the junk chore and the beginning of a segment we like to put in uh, for um, you, you guys. Tell me, guess. Good grief, give me a gift. It's called Good me- Grief, Give Me a Gift. Uh, we put out an episode uh, on Twitter and we put a gift with it. At least we should be. I'm, I'm dreadfully behind the last few episodes. But at least if you're listening to this episode, you can reminisce with us about all the wonderful shots in this movie. Um, Cody, what did you write down for this movie's uh, various wonderful, stunning frames? 
Yeah, uh, God, there are so many stunning frames in this uh, in this movie. So many stunning shots and scenes. Um, the Silence of the Lambs. Uh, this is Trial of uh, Movie Podcast. Um, I saw this. Uh, I wasn't able to make it to the trial on for this uh, f- for this movie, um, so I watched it. The one I, I guess preeminent streaming service it's on is, is Max, and so they do the annoying thing where they like count in reverse order. So at at minus fifty eight thirty three, um, the uh, a shot reverse shot another shot reverse shot um sequence but it's of hannibal lecter sort of eye fucking this pen that he's gonna escape with it's just like at least six or seven shots just like him pen him pen and like the camera (laughs) is like getting closer and closer wiggly eyebrows (laughs) yeah all while um i think chilton is talking with him i I legitimately uh, like that series of shots and i also legitimately like at a minus 45 colon zero zero that uh when he strokes clarice's finger when hannibal strokes clarice that was one of my picks that was also Um, one of mine yep yeah yeah where she runs back for the case file uh they in that camera freezes that particular second in time where he just the finger stroke uh and then she and then they they part ways once again it, extremely good stuff those are my two picks well, uh, thank you yeah um one joke pick i bet if you made a really short gif you could make a perfect loop of hannibal uh doing the like <laughs> When he talks about eating the dude's liver with some fava beans, he sort of like <laughs> leans forward. It would be very funny to just get Anthony uh, Hopkins' tongue like wagging up and down like that. Um, more seriously, I think a really good gif would be um, in the final climatic sequence when Buffalo Bill has the night vision goggles on and he is like, he puts his hand up like almost to stroke Clarice's face, um, but doesn't quite get there. Um, speaking of empathizing and like, sad sequences like that sequence is one of the tensest in like movie history but also like like watching him reach out and not quite touch her over and over again and like be almost like tender in that moment is like a really deeply harrowing and sad thing um and i think it kind of encapsulates his character really well this way he's like kind of trying to reach out to in his own terrible way uh this this form of identification um so that would be a really good one um and i think those are my those are my big two i there are a lot of other ones but you know it's fine yeah yeah there are i I wanted to try and avoid as many of the like super iconic ones as possible um uh, that's typically what i try i don't know i guess i get tired of seeing the same gifts on the internet time and time again so mine uh for this episode we're going to be um there's near the beginning when she's sort of jogging through the woods on her training path. There's a, just a shot to a, to a series of signs stuck on a tree. I think it says uh, hurt, pain, something else. Agony and, and then ag- love agony it, right? and love it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it's just like a slow, uh, like panning shot down the tree until we see her sort of running into the building. Uh, I found that I always find that very I don't know. We, we see her like struggling in the woods uh, and then hurt, pain, agony, love it. Uh, just a good comedic uh, brush. Uh, and then there's the scene where he, uh, I forget both of the officer's names, but Pembry, the guy that he tears his face off. Um, uh, it's the scene in the, in the courtroom where he's sort of stuck in his uh, cage in the middle with his desk and everything. Um, and after he's murdered both of these men, or at least killed one of them and seriously injured the other, he's uh, waving his hand over his tape 
player as the concerto finishes and there's just blood stained and everything and his hand is covered in, in red Ooh, that's a good one yeah it's a really fucking good i was shot. also gonna add uh when he tears off the pen free skin mask in the um ambulance <laughs> that's really good too because he's making this hilarious expression where he's so excited and his face is covered in blood yeah. and it's, man that escape is so good and also so ridiculous when you like stop and, and like break it down it's like wait did they not have fucking cameras in that room yeah <laughs> it's like I, like what, what how did this happen that like <laughs> He was like alone with these corpses for like the two and a half hours it must have required to like stage them and like fashion a skin mask. And it's like, I don't know, man. Clothes with he changed clothes. Like it was he had like this time to set up this entire tableau. And it's just like there were just like four floors full of cops that just were standing around while he did all that. I don't know. It's it's fabulous. I don't know. I I, I know that uh, frequent guest of the podcast, um, Seth Zarati, has a real problem. He watched this movie for the first time with me a couple of years ago, and he still has a problem. He still refers to any like really bothering, bothersome plot uh, hole as Hannibal's pen because he does not understand how Hannibal is supposed to have gotten Chilton's pen from that one scene because he's been tied up. He's in the you know the, the dolly. He's in the chair. It's unclear how he actually gets that what? pen. To me, I mean, it's like, he's, oh, maybe he leaned, maybe they like, maybe he's the blanket he was wrapped in. Or, right. You got to like buy into the, you they can refer let it go. to, it's one of my favorite lines in this movie. It's just, they do a really good job of characterizing the like tiny side cops in that scene uh, where he makes his escape. And there's the one guy that when he's, uh, um, when he's walking Clarice up and into the the cell, he's like, is it true what they're saying about him? Is he like some kind of vampire? And it's like, <laughs> are we watching a fucking Batman movie? <laughs> I feel like that guy's like, I heard he's invisible into Batman. Don't be can't feel pain. <laughs> and, and it's like, I, but I, I do legitimately love that because like, that's exactly what Hannibal wants, especially at the start of this is to be like perceived at, as this like God creature that is like beyond human reckoning. Um, and I, I really love that that moment is hilarious so that's that's why great. because he's fucking batman he, he can get that pen because he's is he was always yeah. gonna have that pen he's bad he moves in silence uh excellent uh well with those gifts um imagine them if i don't make them everybody uh but hopefully you'll see them on twitter eventually um we have one final segment or i should uh, outro with good grief that was good grief give me a gift uh we have one final segment to our show before we actually reach time of the uh, actual runtime of this movie one hour 58 minutes it is we're at 111 so we're fine. Harry, help me. I, I, I get such panic. Harry, help me <laughs> help me ring in the final segment of our show. Yes, it's the segment we like to call <gasps> Cody's, Cody's Noties. Wow. Thank you, gentlemen. That introduction was only on screen for like 16 minutes. Uh, today, I think it's important we shed some light on one of the finest performers in the film, The Silence of the Lambs. And that is, of course... Darla the dog, uh, Darla's Darla, filmography. Darla, Darla. Ho, 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 ho. Woof. A tough, uh, a tough performance, too. A lot of uh, physical trauma sustained by poor yeah. Precious in this movie. Tons. Uh, so much. Uh, Darla's filmography consists of five total films. Uh, I think they're, are mo- they're movies that we'll all have. I mean, I, I know them all. I think you guys will at least have fleeting familiarity with them. So I figured this would be uh, a good time to learn a bit more about those works. Uh, on this show known as Darlov, a movie podcast. Uh, and just to stop a few tweets, Darla is actually a, a Bichon Freeze, or however you say that, um, and not a poodle. So the I think play- I got that at Taco Bell last night. <laughs> mm, judges, uh, you got their thumbs pointing kind of in the, in the middle, uh, parallel to, to the ground. Um, 
Uh, the wordplay, therefore, may seem a little ill-advised. However, she is credited as a poodle in multiple films. Uh, which ones? We'll find out later. Uh, I will read off one question, uh, one question at a time, rather. You'll provide your answers. And uh, I was going to say spinner out generated order but i'll just shoot from the hip there's only uh, two of y'all here today uh, and points will be adjudicated based on correctness of the guess as always trivia mafia rules apply here so use your noodles not your poodles with that let's go ahead and jump in so darla's first film was 1985's uh, peewee's big adventure and she's credited as pink poodle uh, something of a, uh, a fondly remembered cult hit it was also an early directorial work of tim burton Maybe you've heard of him. Uh, it also starred and was co-written by the late Paul Rubens, uh, additionally co-written by the late Phil Hartman, and the score was done by Danny Elfman. I didn't realize that. Whoa. Um, but, but super cool. Yeah, it's a fucking uh, murderer's row. <laughs> uh, and uh, showing, I believe, at the at the trilon in the coming weeks slash months, so potentially stay tuned. Uh, my that question would be for so you all, good, dude. <laughs> I really, really, really love save it for the sorry, save sorry. It for the fucking pod, you maniac. Um, my question for you all, though, for the time being, how tall was former baseball player Pee Wee Reese? And we're going to start with Harry. Harry, how tall was Pee Wee Reese? He played for the Dodgers. I think, think he played alongside Jackie Robinson. When, uh, for oh, a spell. Jackie Robinson? Okay. Yeah, well, maybe you've heard of him. People were shorter back then because there were fewer chemicals in the food. Look it up. Uh, the truth is out there. Um, right. I'm going to go with 5'8". Uh, he was 5'8". Harry says he was 5'8". What does Jason say Pee Wee Reese was? I say knowing his name makes it worse because I don't know if baseball players are ironic. Oh, no. What if he's like 6'7"? It could what be. if it's a tiny like situation? Yeah. Pee Wee Reese. I'm going to say with a name like Pee Wee Reese, he, it's got to be six foot one. I know six. that pe- people that tall don't typically base, but play baseball, but you know. Got a rip. Randy yeah, Johnson did the big unit. Really? Shout out. He was a big unit. <laughs> six, six foot ten. That monster. Oh, Jesus um, fucking Christ. Yeah, dude. He yeah. can throw a 105 mile an hour fastball. I don't know why <laughs> I'm so obsessed bitch. with Randy Johnson. <laughs> Probably just because he obliterated that bird. <laughs> at the silence of the birds that day at the ballpark. Uh, according to online sources, Pee Wee Reese was allegedly five feet 10 inches tall it's kind of an underwhelming result it's kind of somewhere in the middle uh but uh harry was closest by by an inch so he gets the edge and the point in that particular question uh number two darla's second film chronologically involved her portraying the character Dottie in 1988's coming to america uh, starring and written by eddie murphy murphy reportedly received a personal salary of eight million dollars for his work in this movie plus a particular percentage share of film rentals my question for you guys what percentage of film rentals did he receive uh, we'll start with jason this time so what, what was that percentage cut of film rentals that eddie murphy got i am gonna say he got a cool i know this was a hugely rented film i'll say he got a cool 15 percent. jason is going that, with i know that'd be a lot percent but... i mean he is eddie murphy if if right. anybody cannot be shafted by a this, studio, this was this was after uh, fucking. Uh, why am I not thinking of his movie with Nick Nolte? Oh, uh, forty eight hours. Forty eight hours. No. This was after forty eight hours. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so yeah. like he'd yes, already that's true. hit the stardom. Yeah. Um, is that the sound of hitting the stardom? First of all, fantastic. I didn't know that there was ever like a payment plan that included percentage of video rentals. That sounds so quaint in this day and age. And also like, wow, we've gotten a lot 
worse. Yeah, they're currently marketing for similar things. Yeah, <laughs> like that, the idea that that actors would ever get any sort of like. Um, but I, I'm still going to say there's no way that it wasn't more than like that. It was more than like three percent. I'm going to go with like three percent. Harry is going to go with like three uh, percent. If the internet is to be believed, Eddie Murphy received. 15% of coming to America's oh. film rental revenue. Does uh, does uh, Jason get like a bonus point for hitting it right on the nose? No, we, no we, we've never done that. That's fair. Um, no. We could. That's, we could that's fucking do crazy. You know, Eddie Murphy must have a lot of money. He <laughs> had a lot of out. juice back then and he's got more now. Yeah. 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 Well, I don't uh, know. He spent a lot. He must have spent at least some of those billions on cocaine, right? <laughs> like some uh, some percentage of that film rental still alive, was going so straight I'm into he didn't spend a gigantic party all the time. Yeah. Uh, facilitators. Yeah. Uh, speaking of juice, uh, you two fellows have equitable juice as you are tied one apiece. Still very much anybody's game as we head into Darla's third film. Uh, she portrayed Queenie in 1989's The Burbs. A Great film, uh, in my humble opinion, directed by the great Joe Dante, starring the great trio of Tom Hanks, Carrie Fisher, and Bruce Dern. Um, I don't know, I like Joe Dante. Movies, yeah, that classic large. trio. It is. <laughs> you know who they are. You're, no, you're not wrong. You're wrong. It's you're a classic right. trio. Yeah. Uh, shout out to the Burbs and the classic trio. Um, Three equally beloved actors. <laughs> Yeah, everybody loves uh, uh, Nebraska, right? The movie Nebraska. Um, anyway, as its title suggests, The Burbs takes place in an, a, a nice suburban neighborhood uh, in which uh, antics ensue. I'm not going to get into that. My question for you, though, what is the current median sale price for a home in Edina, Minnesota? Um, we'll go to Harry first for this. Median sale price for a home in Edina, Minnesota. There's some, ri- there some rich motherfuckers in Edina, right? At least I've always thought of it as a, a rich place. Yes. Uh, I'm going to go with... Um, Seven hundred thousand. Harry is coming in with seven hundred thou. Locking you in. Thank you. And Jason, what do you think? Edina. I'm going to go four fifty. Four hundred fifty thousand dollars. Four hundred fifty thousand doll hairs. Thank you very much. The actual retail play. The actual PayPal price of the current median sale. Place for home in Edina, <laughs> Minnesota. $622,500 is the wow. figure I got. Um, so, yeah, uh, Edina, every day I need attention. That's from <laughs> high school tennis days. Oh, really got cool. their uh, ass, dude. Fuck yeah. I, I'm, I'm sure adults say that as well. If they don't, they should. Um, so, shout out to Edina. Pee pee poo poo. Uh, so Harry gets the point. He was closest. Heading into, we got, uh, like we said, two more here. Uh, Darla's fourth film is The Silence of the Lambs. She plays, well, she is precious, but she also plays a dog named Precious. Um, we're going to approach this question a little bit differently than the others. Uh, so what's going to happen is I will begin reading the prompt. And as soon as you think you are equipped to answer the prompt, raise your Zencaster hand uh, and you'll be asked to submit a guess at that time. So I'll have all of my eyes glued in uh at those glued in at those zencaster hands do we sure. get do we get one guess is it just one and done so you better like save your shot yes what, um, is it, what does barbarossa yeah. say 16 years you chased me and now you've wasted your shot i no i i, I think barbosa says yeah you best start believing in podcasts you're on one <laughs> uh something like that anyways so i'm gonna I'll, I'll start reading so yes yeah you get you you got you got one shot you fellas have been marooned on podcast island you got a pistol with one shot um 
And here we go. The Silence of the Lambs is one of three films in the history of the Academy Awards to have won the Big Five. Name one of the other two films. And Jason has his hand raised, so the floor is Jason's. So here's what's going to happen. So we, we got to the part of the prompt where I say, uh, said, name one of the other two films. Jason will have the ability to guess one film, regardless of, of his guess, because there are two films. Harry will also get a guess. Um, if Jason gets it right and Harry uh, guesses wrong, we'll, it'll go back to Jason. We'll give him the opportunity to list the second one if he happens to, to know it. So that's kind of the order of operations here. I'm, I'm, I'm very much shooting from the hip. I got a pistol with one shot, and I figure shooting from the hip is the best way to go, I guess. Therefore, I'm still marooned on Podcast Island. Anyway, Jason raised his hand first. Jason, what do you think for this? Uh, everything, everywhere, all at once. Everything, everywhere, all at once is the guess. Uh, swing and a miss, or a shot and a miss. Um, so that's so quack quack. We're going over to Harry. Um, to give you one guess at this. Oh, uh, man. so naming one of the two films. I should really know this. I'm. It's weird that I really fell apart here, but I guess I'm going to try The Godfather Two. Godfather Two is the guess. Another miss. Uh, so no pistol shots landed. The reason I, part of the reason I came back to this is, uh, one of the movies is it, it, no points for this question. I'm just going to kind of pop off here a little bit, but, uh, one of the episodes, uh, that I couldn't make fits this criteria. And I think the, the conceit of this question was mentioned on the episode and somebody said something to the effect of wish Cody was here because he would know it. I did know it. Uh, and the other, the other, uh, movies, anyway, so the big five. You win best director, best actor, best actress. Um, did I say picture, picture, director, actor, actress, screenplay? You win mm-hmm. the, you're nominated for those five. You win those five. Maybe you win others at the Academy Awards, but you win at least those five. Silence of the Lambs won it, uh, or took, you won the big five. One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest also did that oh. as well as previous episode. It happened one night. So, so that's. I see. The, I never the, clue, gotten yeah. the clues were right in front of you, Mister yeah. Detective. Yeah, that's time. true. I, I got It happened one night. Yeah, yeah. especially because the movie's not that good. Uh, actually, oh. it's really good. Um, yeah, I should have been on that episode because I would have <laughs> taken all the tasks, put you in your place. Yeah. Uh, haughty talk for somebody who did not get a point that question, but Harry that's is fair. still that's in fair. the lead. Uh, the score is two to one in Harry's favor as we enter the final question. Uh, Darla's fifth and final film was 1992's Batman Returns, also a previous episode. Uh, in that movie, she portrayed Ratty Poodle. Um, so, also, yeah, poodle sh- holy shit! Shout outs to Darla. Fucking nothing but bangers <laughs> up in here. Yeah, what a career. Like the the John Cazale of dogs uh, or dog actors, rather. Um, <laughs> oh my god! Oh man, uh, that was a really good joke, Cody. That really got me. Yeah, thank you. Um, to to get a, a, I guess a little bit somber with this question. Um, tone shift upon the completion of this film uh darla retired from acting uh, and actually passed away later that year um that being said my question for you all how old did darla live to be um we're gonna go human years i'm not gonna ask you to do the math for dog years but how how many years old did darla live to be um well i I, will start with jason i think this time to, to even that out so jason how old did you think or do you think darla grew up to be famous dog actor darla uh, th- uh, 13 years old. All right, Jason is going with 13. I think we made it to, to teenage years. And Harry, what do you think? 
I was going to go with 15. Harry is going with 15. John um, Sale of Dogs. <laughs> Dude. <laughs> really the most Cody thing I've ever heard on this podcast. Uh, and here's the thing. Uh, I'm right. Darla the dog was born in uh, late in 1975, which puts her at 17 years of age. She was my really, She lived a long fucking Old life. Bird, a real, yeah. a real, real one. Yeah, um, really good stuff uh, from Darla. As as it was said, nothing but bangers in Darla's filmography. Um, and uh, less importantly, but still should be said, uh, Harry uh, won this game. He got three points. He got closest in the last one. Score three to one. Um, shout out to Darla. Thank you. This has been Darla, a movie podcast um, or a Bichon Freeze cast whatever you think um so yeah pop-off platform yeah uh, in, in lieu of my pop-off i just want to say that uh everybody should read i once once the game was over i immediately went to darla's wikipedia entry because of course i did uh and it it absolutely rocks it's uh darla worked with trainer uh christy malie in uh silence of the lambs according to whom darla's quote-unquote big thing was stealing rocks citation number six um here's my favorite part she was extremely smart and loved everyone darla loved being around people citation eight they have that shit cited so like don't fucking come <laughs> yeah. at them um let's see uh stealing socks it should be noted um excuse me yeah way cuter than rocks um way cuter big, than rocks yeah yeah. Yeah, yeah yeah to your point yeah in scare quotes big thing her big also, thing was stealing uh, socks very darla cute. retired to thousand oaks california in 1992 which i think is really <laughs> good um just sort of took up uh windsurfing i think out there <laughs> the rest of her days um, driving her yeah thunderbird fucking great dog a really great dog really that was in nothing shit. but bangers um great stuff thank you Cody. she is she was better known than i will ever be and statistically she probably oh she definitely lived longer than i will in yeah, dog why years not anyway, like, right i wasn't in fucking silence the lamps i'm probably never gonna do anything <laughs> like that so like shout outs well, N17 in dog years is like 119 in human years, so we'll see. We'll see. You're what... not going to make that, dude. I don't Probably know if I'm going to make 60. Your blood pressure is so high. It is so uh, bad. No, once, once this Patreon really gains momentum, the, the healthcare that we're going to be able to afford is we're going to be able to do this shit. We'll do yeah. this shit forever. We're going to do Roger Corman numbers. Did you know Roger Corman's still fucking alive? Dude, I that's that fucking because, wild. Because, oh, yeah. He, yeah. because he's an actor in this movie. Apparently he's mm-hmm. one of like the cops or something. Yeah. Uh, and I was like, that can't be the same Roger. It's the same fucking Roger Corman. I uh, better believe it. Yeah. Keep, keep on kicking Roger Corman. Uh, and that's the official stance of trial of until he gets, I guess more formally canceled. I don't know. Maybe. Uh, thank you so much for listening. Everybody take a look at our backlog. Another 249 episodes before this one. Uh, here's to another 250. Um, thank you so much for joining for this one. Uh, we've covered a lot of movies, probably some you've seen. Uh, if you liked this one, you'll probably like our discussions about the other ones too. Um, they have uh, only gotten better over time though. So keep that in mind. Uh, check out the trial website for uh, showings that go on through the rest of the year. And into next year, I think they published some of their early 2024 schedule, but if not, uh, I lied. Um, check us out on Twitter at Try Love Podcast. Check me out on Twitter at Nintendoofus. Hi. I, I got so captivated by Jason's outro that I I'm somehow to better than I was at the beginning of the episode. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, now that's Hannibal Lecter may not have had a character arc, but Jason sure did in this episode. Just kidding. We all have our arcs. Um, I'm hunched over, so that's kind of my uh, arch right now. <laughs> uh, I've been Cody Narvison. You can find me on Blue Sky at Cody Narvison. 
I'm unmuting myself. Hey, uh, thanks for listening to 250. I would say I actually do want there to be another 250 episodes, which is really something. Uh, and I really appreciate that. So thank you all. Um, I've been Harry Mack, and you can find me on Twitter at PunishTake. I do wish we could chat longer, but I'm having an old friend for dinner. Bye. too far.